And join me in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And if you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 995, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14. Our keywords for our worshipers in training are stand, reform, and entrusted. Our sermon is entitled Semper Reformanda, Unwavering. Now this morning we end our series on principles of the Protestant Reformation. And this coming Tuesday will mark the day, October 31st, that is historically regarded as the day when the 95 Theses of Martin Luther was posted at the Wittenberg Church in Wittenberg, Germany to kick off the Reformation 500 years ago. And as we've mentioned all along, this is a huge celebration for the church around the world. The Reformation was one of the most uh, culture-shifting, shaping, world-changing events in all of human history, not just the church. Now, many, many, many of the things we are thankful for and take for granted today were as a result of the Reformation, not just within the church, but in society in general, whether we we know that or not. One of those things being the, the founding of our country on the principles of freedom and liberty. With that being said, we we are very thankful for our heritage within the church as a Reformed church, and so we hope you have found that the focus that we've sought to place on the Reformation this year, we hope we've found that rewarding and valuable and helpful and insightful, um, not just from a historical perspective, as important and necessary that is, but also a theological and a devotional and an ecclesiastical uh, position. We've hopefully been able to solidify all the more the reasons why, for us, being Reformed is so vital, why it's important as it pertains not only to the whole counsel of God in general, but the gospel itself very specifically. Now, whether or not this day has been on your calendar for years, it may or may not have been on mine, uh, the day is important and worth noting as we recall that Jesus was very serious when he said the church would be built in such a way that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And the Protestant Reformation came at a time when it looked like the church was going to be anything but what we see Jesus saying it's going to be in the Bible. And yet, from the midst of the ash heap, God brought about a magnificent work of grace that set the world on fire with gospel fervor. So we've sought to highlight the most important principles that came out of the Reformation in such a way that we would all thank God for what He has done, that we would all have a deeper appreciation for the Reformation, that we would have a better grasp of our heritage, knowing that we stand on the shoulders of many godly and courageous men and women who turned the world upside down for the glory of God. So to end the series this morning, we're going to think about a principle that is often misunderstood and misapplied in our day. It's a very important principle, and and we must be committed to it in our individual lives, in Christ, and also within the church. It's a principle that if the Reformers themselves were not committed to, the Reformation never would have happened in the first place. 
And you get to learn some Latin, so that's always fun too. Semper Reformanda. It actually comes from a longer phrase. Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, Secundum Verbi Dei. The church is reformed and is always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. That's what that means. And church historians have traced that back to a phrase that was written in 1674 in a book written by a man named uh, Van Lodenstein. He was an important figure in the Dutch Reformation, um, and he wrote this about 100 100 years after that happened. Um, And his whole idea was that they were to continue to pursue reformation in their lives and in their practice as the church. Now, many people have taken this phrase, semper reformanda, always reformed or always reforming, and assume it's a catchphrase to justify theological novelty and constant change in the doctrine and practice of the church. But as with everything, context is key. Understanding what Lodenstein meant and why he was writing about it is very important in understanding why it became a phrase that the church adopted and held on to and has become synonymous with the Reformation itself. Lodenstein's concern wasn't doctrinal and ecclesiastical change and innovation. His concern was personal holiness and biblical practice within the church. And so the main point that he was making, one which all of us should heartily agree with, is that we should constantly be looking at our own lives and practice in the church in light of the Word of God and be willing to reform or change based on what we learn to be true. In other words, we're always striving to be more biblical, not more innovative or uh, more progressive. And so if you've been at Redeemer Baptist Church for a while, you will hopefully recognize how we've sought to apply this principle in our own practice as we've identified things that we do or have done that we found to be inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture or were not as biblical as they could have been. And as we grow, we hope more and more that we are consistent and more aligned with God's Word. And from time to time, that will mean things need to change. But that doesn't mean that we're moving towards things that are are new or innovative for the sake of being new or innovative, but rather that we're standing faithfully upon that which is ancient and true. So let's look at our text, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, and we're going to consider what the Bible has to tell us about Semper Reformanda as we strive to be unwavering in our commitment to all that is good and right and true according to God's word. So let's read together. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffered as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, 
And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, the letter of 2 Timothy is Paul's final correspondence with his son in the faith, probably the last letter he wrote altogether. He calls him to continued faithfulness to a king and his kingdom, calling him to hold fast to the faith that has been taught by the power of the Holy Spirit, calling him to not waver from the pattern or the good deposit that has been entrusted to him. So this letter from Paul to Timothy is very personal. It is is filled with love and affection for the young pastor. It's his last will and testament. John Calvin said it was written not merely in ink, but by Paul's lifeblood. This is, as far as we understand, historically the last thing that Paul wrote and sent that the church received. Now, looking at the whole of the letter, we can discern that Paul's intention for the letter, yes, was for Timothy, but it was also for the entire church. And if you look at the introductory statement to the letter, you can see that. It's very formal. You realize that it was written not just for Timothy. He wouldn't have begun the way that he did in doing so. So while he's addressing the young pastor, he's also addressing the church. And in that, he's addressing us. It's a message for us. And the text we're focusing on is an exhortation. It's an encouragement from Paul, that we would always be reformed and reforming according to the Word of God. And I want to explain how we see that. We, we will think through the phrase, Ecclesia reformata semper reformanda secundum verbi Dei. We're going to think about that in light of our text this morning under three different headings. The first thing for us to see is that we must be unashamedly reformed by being unashamedly faithful. Verses 8 through 12 are an extended exhortation from Paul about not being ashamed of the gospel, not being ashamed of Christ, not being ashamed of what we face as believers because we are in Christ. One of the great legacies of the Reformation that we stand upon is that of unashamed faithfulness. The Reformers and any true believer in Christ understands, as we see here with the Apostle Paul, that we need not be ashamed. For we know whom we have believed, and we are convinced and can be convinced from God's word that he alone is able to guard us until that day which has been entrusted to us. Now, of course, our faith is based on the very gospel that many of our Reformed forefathers gave their very lives to recover from the grips of evil that sought to destroy it. Our faith is in Christ alone. And if our faith is in Christ, it is derived from the gospel. And if it's derived from anything other than the gospel, if our faith is in supposed miracles or signs or wonders or good works, the gospel is reduced to something other than what it is. It's reduced to moralistic call to follow the example of Jesus. It's not faith in Jesus himself. So then the gospel is no longer good news. The gospel becomes good advice at best. And the Reformers saw that this this very reality had encroached on the church. The gospel was nowhere to be found. But you and I have to be just as aware of that today. 
Our faith can easily be misplaced in something other than Christ if we are not setting our eyes on the way, the truth, and the life every single day afresh. The great 20th century Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen wrote this. He said, what I need, first of all, is not an exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? This is that question that I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? Where does your faith lie? What gives you hope? What gives you assurance? What gets you out of bed every morning? You know, it sounds like a good and right thing for us to say, my family, my kids, my spouse, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning and off to work. I need to provide for them. I need to work hard for them. That's what keeps me going in life. And I hope you think highly of your family. I hope you work hard for your family and you give yourself and love and serve them and work hard for them, laying down your life for their advantage. However, and that's one example of many, your assurance and your hope and your motivation to go through every day of life need not be your family and your obligations to them and certainly not your paycheck. May your motivation be first and foremost your faith in Jesus Christ. That as his children, we have a delightful privilege to live each and every day, no matter what that day brings, to bring him glory. And yes, that includes working hard and, and serving your family and, and earning a living and providing. But the goal is solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And only through the faith that the gospel creates in the heart can anyone respond faithfully to the imperatives of God's law? It's, it's easy to focus on what God commands because it's easy to make a list and try and check it off. But it's not the imperatives of the law, but the reality of the gospel alone that brings life and immortality to light. For Paul, there was no good enough gospel that could be believed. And all else would just sort of fall into place eventually. There was no dichotomy between faith and our daily motivation. The message of the gospel was the mission of the church. Doctrine and life came together. Creeds and deeds lived alongside one another. The marriage of faith and life is what being reformed is all about above all else. And I, I hope you see that and I hope you know that very intimately. I hope when you, when you say, I am a reformed Baptist, that what you're saying above all else is that your faith and your life are inseparably woven together and that who you are in Christ affects every aspect of your life. Because the gift of faith has been given to you and it has changed you. That's unashamed faithfulness because Christ has invaded the entirety of our lives, not just a few words we use and not just a few things that we do from time to time, but everything about our lives is changed and affected. Now, of course, what Paul makes clear in the text is that being unashamedly faithful doesn't end with things being easy or stress-free. Faithfulness to the gospel may lead to suffering. It may lead to costly suffering. 
Paul wants Timothy to be prepared to suffer for Jesus Christ, physically, socially. And so the temptation to be ashamed is there. But Paul is saying, don't be. Don't be ashamed. Stand firm. Continue in unashamed faithfulness. But there's something else here that's interesting. Paul says in verse 8 that Timothy is also faithful to him. Is Paul putting himself in the same category as Christ? Well, here's, here's the point he's making. Paul, at the time of this writing, is a prisoner, and he's only probably days or weeks away from being martyred. So he's saying, Timothy, you are showing that you are unashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ by the way of showing that you are unashamed of the least of the disciples in how you are unashamed of me, a prisoner in his name. And so by associating with me and continuing to walk with me, you're showing that you are unashamedly faithful to the gospel of Christ. And brothers and sisters, we live in interesting days, and we're we're surrounded by many opportunities to proclaim the truth. To many people, we assume, have heard the gospel, when in reality, many people around us have simply assumed the gospel. Maybe you have assumed the gospel. When, when you say, I have faith in Christ, what does that mean? What does it mean that you have faith? When someone tells you that they have faith, if you get a chance to talk to them, it's worth asking, what do you mean by that? It's one thing to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, so my faith is an unashamed faith, but what is the gospel? What is your faith in? Is your faith in the perfect life lived by the God-man, by the Savior uh, who, who lived the life that you couldn't live? Is your faith in the God-man who died the death that you deserve, that only he could die as a perfect spotless lamb to be sacrificed on your behalf? Is your faith in the resurrection of Christ, that it was true and real and life-giving, the, the down payment of the promise that our life too will be caught up with his forever and ever? And when your faith is challenged, when when making a stand on something is unpopular but biblical, is this faith enough to sustain you? When the rubber hits the road and when your world crashes in and trials come and, and temptations flare up and your world starts to cave in, does what you have faith in have the strength and the girth and the resistance and the power to hold you up? When the easy way out is to lie or to cheat or when perhaps professing the name of Jesus means certain death, do we have true faith? Because true faith will carry us along. True faith is always right and and standing upon the word of God and all that he commanded is good no matter what the earthly outcome. Do we have that kind of faith? You see, some people think that our saying that we are reformed is just a way of distinguishing and dividing and, and maybe you're not to a place where you're comfortable using that language, and, and that's fine. You don't have to. But for those of us who do and understand it the way that we do, it's far more important than just trying to distinguish ourselves from others. The reality is that we're recognizing something very important, that our lives are caught up with Christ. That our lives, every aspect of our lives are caught up with being faithful to Christ in all that we do. And we're recognizing the faith we have in Christ isn't something we understand in a vacuum. 
It comes with a history. And I, I don't mean that our, our faith is derived from anywhere other than Christ and the transforming, powerful work of the gospel. What I do mean is that our heritage is one of godly people who gave everything to ensure that 500 years later, we wouldn't be standing here preaching about your need to say prayers to Mary with a beaded necklace in your hand or to go lock yourself in a closet with, a, with another man to confess your sins, or to climb the stairs on your knees saying your prayers in hope that one day you might be forgiven. Our heritage is one that ensures that when we preach Christ and Him crucified, we are able to do so with clarity and conviction because God used so many godly men and women in a period of time when clarity was desperately needed to write Mountains of helpful, godly, soul-stirring, gospel-clarifying works that today we can be all the more certain that what God did and is continuing to do in our midst is the work that only the gospel can accomplish. Our faith is joined as a link in a long chain of faithful brothers and sisters stretching back to the past, and we remain unashamedly reformed by being unashamedly faithful as they were faithful, as God calls us to be faithful now and far into the future. Well, secondly, this morning we see from our text that we must always be reformed by guarding the deposit given to us. In verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul lays out for Timothy the essential necessity to remain grounded in the truth and to have a love for the truth of God's word. He says to follow the pattern and to guard the deposit. The pattern is a pattern of sound words, a pattern of life-giving words. Paul emphasizes this because he has seen how rapidly and easily false teaching has spread. There were in that day numerous false ideas, and there are today numerous false ideas. Think of the vast amount of people who listen to the nonsense that's out there today. Just getting back from another trip from Nigeria, I am always struck by just how much deplorable false teaching exists in that country by so many claiming to be Christians. But it's no different here at home. It's just not on display like it is there. Think of those charlatans who feel, fill the airwaves, who say very little that has to do with the truth and twist and distort God's word to appease the masses, to fill their pockets ultimately in the end. The people are taken in mass. They love it. And when, when they stop loving one false teacher, they just move on to the next one. But if you stop them to ask them and ask them, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ that you say you believe? Oftentimes you're going to get blank stares. Now look, I'm no prophet, speaking of false teachers. But I don't foresee that at this point in time in our generation, in our culture, that things are going to get a whole lot better in that regard. If the church maintains a steady diet of false gospel, then we can't assume that it's always going to be getting better. Now, there may be a time, and the Lord can do that, but apart from the remarkable work of a true revival, our communities will fall into more and more secularized type of thinking, and those who are not truly of the faith will not be able to stand the marginalization 
that comes by even identifying as a Christian. So we will be left only with biblical churches. Now, they may be smaller, but they'll be stronger. They will be more unashamedly faithful. But no matter what happens, the Bible is calling us as God's people to persevere and to stay grounded. You and I both know, because we've seen it happen time and time again, that this is the only thing that changes people and shapes their lives and makes them into something other than the natural man is. So why would we want to preach anything else? It is only through the sound word and good deposit of true Christian faith that anyone becomes more like Christ. And there may be a tendency sometimes for us to think, you know, we spend an awful lot of time being very serious about the Bible around here. We're always preaching, we're always teaching and listening to sermons and talking about the Bible. But listen, we are in a battle for our lives and for the lives of our neighbors. We're in the throes of real life and when the winds of false doctrine come knocking at the door, the church has the responsibility to equip you to make sure that you don't fall for the tactics of Elder Kyle and Stuart on their nicely pressed white shirts and black name tags. You need to be equipped to tell them to get back on their bikes and ride away. If they don't want to listen to you, talk to them about the truth. Listen, this isn't just a job for theologians and people who like a good debate. This is the work of the church. Now, we don't need to be heresy hounds out looking for every possible error for us to correct. And for the love of God, please don't be that guy on Facebook. That is not the place to have those conversations, I know, from many failed experiences of my own. But we need to be careful that we never grow lazy in our doctrine. We, we never look at something and think, you know, it's not entirely true, but it's rather harmless for the most part. Now, let me ask you this. If you're mixing pancake batter and a few drops of sweat and an eyelash and a few pieces of hair drop in there, I'm going to guess that your response is not, well, it's mostly good. And if you are okay with that, then you're just nasty. And please don't invite me over for breakfast. And please make sure that during the fellowship meals, you let me know what you brought. Now, precision in understanding what we believe and why we believe it is important. Look again, Paul writes, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. These are strong words. This is why being reformed in the fullest sense means that we are a confessional people, that the doctrines of the church are summarized in a well-written, concise confession of faith that has a historical lineage. You're, you're You're going to meet a lot of Christians in your life, and and probably all of them are going to say that they believe the Bible. Of course they do. But what are we after? Because we have a lot of disagreements with a lot of people who call themselves Christians who say they believe the Bible. The question is, what do you believe about the Bible and what the Bible teaches? 
There's a deposit that Paul is talking about, a doctrinal foundation that has been passed on through the ages and entrusted to the church, and we believe that deposit is most readily and most accessible and most clearly given in the historic creeds and confessions of the church. We need them. We need to pay attention to them. We, we need to use them. We need to be familiar with them. It's why we recite creeds during our worship service. It's why we have established ourselves as a confessional church. And here's the beauty of that for you sitting there this morning when I stand up here. We have a biblically derived standard to look at and determine whether or not what you're hearing up here is biblical and according to the Scriptures. Churches without confessions of faith still have confessions of faith. They're just not written down, and they tend to be whatever the pastor believes and wants to preach that day, whether it's true or not. But if I get off the rails and and start telling you something that is contrary to the Bible and we see in our confessional standard how the doctrine is rightly articulated and explained, there's a means of accountability. There's a means of correction. We should want that. Trust me, you don't want to explore the scary depths of what goes on in my heart and my head. I need straight track to run on or we'll all get in a wreck in pretty short order. So, so church, we have a responsibility. Yes, it is primarily the responsibility of the leadership of a congregation, but it is the job of a church as a whole to guard the deposit. And to be reformed means that we do so as a confessional people. And wouldn't you know it, our confession happens to be a Reformation-era document. The deposit has been entrusted to us, so we must be faithful to carry it along for the good of the future of the church that the gates of hell may not prevail against it. Well, lastly this morning, we must always be reformed by the Word of God alone. The phrase, the church is reformed and is always in need of being reformed according to the word of God means primarily this. Not that we need new innovations or creative changes. Not that we constantly redo and alter and make different what we are as a church. Not that we need to recast ourselves as a new kind of church. It means that whatever we do and however we do it needs to be compared to the word of God. And if it's biblical, we need to keep doing it. And if it's not, we need to change. There have been attempts to make this phrase, semper reformanda, as a sort of battle cry to say that we need to keep changing, but that's not at all what's meant by it. We need to become as biblical as we possibly can. That's what's meant. But that's not easy because tradition and preferences die hard. People fight over these things. People have died over these things. Just, just think of your own experience in a church. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, if you've been here long, you know there are things that sometimes we've had to change. And maybe you don't understand them right away as to why that was done. Now, hopefully, we do a decent job of helping to understand why we're doing what we're doing. But sometimes things change, and maybe they're not an issue of biblical faithfulness, but just practice and organization and what it takes to be a church and have a right framework to to be faithful to our mission and our calling, there are certainly things that are indifferent. And there are things that are preference issues that may, we may differ over, and, and certainly the, those things exist. And sometimes we just have to learn to live with those differences with one another because we don't want a church that is shaped in the image and likeness of an individual or a small group of individuals. 
But when it comes to matters of biblical faithfulness, if something is found to be unbiblical, if something is found to be out of bounds, a change has to take place. And we all have a responsibility to bend to Scripture and not expect Scripture to bend to us. Someone told me once, you know, the church, uh, the church, speaking of our local church, just seems to be so concerned about getting everything just right. And my response is, well, we don't get everything just right, but we want to. We hope to. And every chance we get to try to make it all the more so, we'd like to do that. But we're a collective body of sinners, so we know that the only just right church that we will ever be a part of is the glorified church before the throne of grace. But until then, we want to do all that we can do to be just like the Bible calls us to be. And I hope every church wants that. And if they don't, I'm not sure what they're doing. Listen, there's nothing to be ashamed of of wanting to be as biblical as possible. That seems to be the very thing that Paul is exhorting Timothy to. There's, there's nothing to be ashamed of when we say the church is always reformed according to the Word of God. There's nothing reformed or reformational about changing the church's theology or the ethics to get on the right side of history or to stay current with the insights of social sciences, or even to prove that we love the least of these. The model of the Reformation was not forward. It was backward. If you remember from church history class, we talked about the, the, the phrase that sort of kicked things off, ad fontis, back to the sources. The Reformers wanted to recover something that had been lost, not to follow the, the winds of rising modernity. And so if the church can never stand still, we can't just stand there and, and assume that everything's always all right. We need to continue to look to the Word of God. We need to continue to be willing to be conformed to the Word of God and let it shape us and change us. It is because we always need to be reoriented because our tendency is to drift away from the truth. So you see, Semper Reformanda is not about constant fluctu- fluctuations. It is about firm foundations. It is about radical adherence to the Holy Scriptures, no matter the cost to ourselves, no matter the cost to our traditions, no matter the cost to our own fallible senses of cultural relevance. Listen, if you want to be culturally relevant, that, whole, that bird flew several years ago as it concerns the church. It's not going to happen. If Christians want to change the church's sexual ethics, so be it. If they want to become social justice warriors or moralistic humanitarians or philanthropists, so be it. But don't claim the mantle of the reformers in doing so. The only reformation worth promoting and praying for is one that gets us deeper into our Bibles, not further away from them. It's, it's one that happens first and foremost in our own hearts. It's one that drives us more and more to unashamed faithfulness. It's one that gives us keener eyes to see the truth that we can guard the good deposit. It's one that drives us by the truth of the word of God no matter what. No matter what. Brothers and sisters, we have a powerful and rich heritage that we stand upon and we can hear the echoes of the past brought forth from the Bible through the 16th century into the 21st century, and it's telling us this. Stand your ground, hold fast, guard the good deposit. Be open to change whenever we drift from the truth or fail to grow up in it as we should. 
Why? Because we are God's people. And God's people do what God wants. We are the Reformed and aren't ashamed to say so. We are Protestant. 500 years later, we continue to protest any and all false ideas of men that stand opposed to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the church. And the church is reformed and is always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. And may it always be in our midst that that is what is most important. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for a heritage that comes not just from 500 years ago, but that as we look back to the scriptures, we are reminded of what you have called us to be and to do as your church. And we have a great example of how that plays out, that we saw and have seen and that we stand upon. We're thankful that you, throughout the history of your church, have raised up faithful men and women who have given everything to ensure that the church remains faithful to what you have called us to. And so we pray, O oh God, we pray that you help us to always be conformed to the word of God that no matter what may be shifting and changing around us in this world, that our great longing, our great desire is to be conformed to what you have called us to be and to do. And Lord, we all know that begins first and foremost with our hearts, that each and every one of us would have a firm and solid conviction that our lives must be conformed to the Scriptures. And I pray that you would teach us your word and you would help us to know and understand and embrace your word in our hearts. And that as that is worked out in the local church, that each and every one of us would come together of one heart and of one mind with one desire to bring glory to you in all that we say and do. Lord, we're thankful that you haven't left us to come up with our own ideas of what the church should be and how it should function but that you have taught us clearly from your word what you desire from us. And may we be faithful to that, no matter what may come. Give us unashamed faithfulness for your glory, for the building up of your church. And as we have sang this morning, we long to see your churches full, faithful, biblical churches filled with godly people who want to make much of you. We pray that you would do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.